Welcome to Food and Wine with Chef Jamie Gwen. Celebrate food and life by learning about the culinary scene around the world. Speaking with chefs, artists, and food makers, farmers, authors, and tastemakers who are passionate about everything delicious. A very good Sunday to you, food lovers. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. You're invited to a taste of the holiday season this hour. If you have an adventurous palate, well, I'm here to spice up your holidays with grand guests, culinary conversation, and inspiration on all things delicious. We are dishing on food and wine, travel, cocktails, and living the best life this hour. So dig in because I'm bringing you all the flavor every Sunday. And I'm always serving up seconds, by the way, at chefjamie.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chefjamiegwen. So I thought that this Sunday it seemed only appropriate as we are in the heart of the holiday season to talk about waste not, want not. The concept that my mother taught me growing up and that I think more Americans need to live by. It is no doubt a bountiful season and we are feasting with family and friends. Our refrigerators are more full than the rest of the year. And I think it's a really important time to consider that you you should be mindful of using it up. There is really something to be said for using up the scraps and the bits and the leftovers in beautifully scrumptious ways so that we continue uh, in this country to hopefully reduce our waste and consider how very blessed we are by the bounty that we have. So with that said... I thought that I would share my 10 best tips for bits and scraps that are worth saving. And just think about what you have in your fridge right now or what you're planning for Sunday supper tonight and how you can use up some of those scraps or leftovers or some of the components of the ingredients that you buy in new and industrious ways. So... If you have a wedge of Parmesan cheese or anything in the Parmesan family, when you get down to the rind, throw it in a bag um, or a container and throw it in the freezer. The next time that you're making a beautiful pot of soup, like a winter vegetable soup or even a butternut squash soup, Throw in that Parmesan rind and you will infuse your soup with the deepest, most wonderful flavor. Pretty great, right? Number two is carrot tops. If you have a bag of carrots or you've bought carrots at the market that come with their tops, I will say that you can process them into a beautiful pesto. You add a little bit of lemon juice and some garlic and salt and pepper and you drizzle in olive oil and it is so fabulously full of flavor that it makes a wonderful dip for a crudite or you can toss it with pasta for a vegetarian entree as well. Now, number three, when it comes to spectacular saving, save the bones from your uh, perfect roast chicken tonight or your spiral sliced ham at Christmas and freeze them 
until the next time you go to make stock. Then all you do is take the bones, you put them in a pot, and you throw in a half an onion or a leek and a couple of carrots and some peppercorns and a few cloves and a tomato if you have one and the rest of the fresh herbs from that container you already almost used up. And then you cover it with water and of course you simmer it for a couple of hours and you have this beautiful rich stock that that you can then package and store in the freezer for future use. A great way to use up the bones. Now, number four on my saving list, old bagels, the pita, the tortillas rather that you have left. Well, slice them as thin as you can carefully and brush them or drizzle with olive oil, season with salt and bake in a 350 degree oven for say 12 minutes or so until brown and crispy. And then you have bagel chips, pita chips or tortilla chips. Okay, this is a great one. Number five on my list. Strawberry holes. If you are buying fresh strawberries of the season and you hold them, don't throw the tops away. Throw them into a pitcher of water and let the pitcher stand for at least 30 minutes. I will tell you, you can really sort of subtly taste them. They infuse the water with this sort of mellow, refreshing sweetness, and it tastes like the best water you've ever had. What a great way to save those strawberry tops. Now, when it comes to root vegetables, we're all using uh, the beauty of root vegetables this season, right? Like parsnips and uh, rutabagas or beets or turnips. I happen to love the greens. So what I suggest you do is separate the root from the greens when you get home, after from the supermarket shopping, of course, and uh, because, by the way, they store better separately. And then after you've roasted the beets or, uh, you know, uh, steamed the turnips, you saute the greens just as you would kale or Swiss chard. And there is this most wonderful, hearty, sort of southern green style flavor to them. So no reason to throw out those root vegetable tops. Now, when it comes to other veggie scraps, by the way, I suggest that you keep a separate bag in the freezer with the scraps, like the peel of the onion or the shavings or peelings from the carrot. Because the next time you make that stock that I talked about just a couple of minutes ago, you can throw all that fabulous flavor in as well. Now, number nine. And a very important one, because if you know me and you've listened to this show for some time, you know that I believe that bacon makes everything better. Well, that and butter and sometimes beer. And when you fry or uh, roast your bacon, you always pour the grease into a small mason jar. Um, You can strain it if you'd like to get rid of any bits. And then you store the jar in the refrigerator. And the next time that you're making waffles or collard greens or French fries or potato chips, of course you fry in bacon grease. So you get that really fabulous flavor from the bacon's smokiness. You can always saute with that bacon grease as well. And then last but not least on my top 10 lists, worth saving when it comes to waste not want not this holiday season and all year round, orange rinds. There are a couple things that you can do with orange rinds that I think will help you use it up in wonderful ways. Of course, you can throw them into a bottle of vodka and allow the rinds with that Uh, minimal pith preferably, but that bright orange color 
uh, into the vodka, and then you can invite me over and I will gladly toast you. You can also stuff spent rinds into a jar and top it with vinegar. You let it sit for a, a week or so, and then it's an all-purpose cleaner that is homemade and what I think is really fabulously chemical-free. Or you could use the rinds for an easy potpourri. You just put them into a pot with, let's say, a cinnamon stick and a few cloves, and you've got an orange peel or two in there, and you cover it with water, and you put it on the stove, and you let it simmer away. And it scents the kitchen and your whole house with this wonderful holiday aroma. It doesn't get any better than that. So with that said, these tips and tricks are a new trend. We are expecting to see blossom in 2016. It is called compost cooking. And I hope that you will do your part to use it up as I am committed to doing as well to better our country, and to better our dishes all throughout the holiday season. Okay, it's time for food news, because foodies need to be in the know, right? Have you ever wondered what other people in other countries are snacking on? Well, if you happen to have a a snack addiction from a recent trip or maybe from Uh, your country of heritage, well, there's no need to hop on a plane for the sake of indulging in a food fantasy anymore. There is a U.S.-based company called Universal Yum that has just rolled out a box full of snacks and candies from 12 different nations. And you can choose from Germany or Brazil, Italy or China, Mexico or even Scandinavia. And let's say, for instance, uh, you happen to love those um, edible rice paper snacks from Japan. Well, you can say konnichiwa now because all of the best Japanese snacks have been packed in a box from Universal Yum. Check it out. You'll find more information on their website. And have you seen the Star Wars ice cream? Oh, I know. Everyone's getting pretty amped up over Star Wars, right? The Force Awakens. And so there's another epic food battle going on, and it's Star Wars oriented. It's actually with Ample Hills Creamery and their Star Wars inspired ice cream. They've made two new pints that you can choose sides, whether you like the light side or the dark side. Marshmallow ice cream, homemade crispy clusters and cocoa crispies. And the dark side has cocoa crispies, espresso fudge brownies and white chocolate pearls. And the treats are going fast, by the way, as you can imagine. So look for them in a store near you. Star Wars ice cream, pretty cool. And don't touch your dial because we are celebrating. This evening marks the first night of Hanukkah, uh, the Jewish tradition of eight nights of lighting candles and latkes and family celebrations. And Amelia Saltzman is celebrating Hanukkah and waxing poetic on luscious latkes coming up next. Also, Chef Magnus Nilsson is stopping by later in the hour. You saw him on Chef's Table on Netflix. Oh, how I love that show. He is, of course, the executive chef at the helm of Favikan Restaurant in Sweden, and he's sharing his Nordic cookbook. Plus, we're highlighting the history of the San Francisco cocktail movement before the end of the hour, so raise your glass. There is so much delicious conversation coming up in your radio right after this. Chef Jamie Gwen, don't go away.
Oh, there's so much to celebrate this season. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio. We're taking a fresh look at tradition today. At Hanukkah, the Jewish holiday we call the Festival of Lights, and all around the world, Jews celebrate with eight nights of festivities. We light the menorah, and we eat copious amounts of potato latkes and sufganayot, or donuts. I mean, how could that be bad? Award-winning cookbook author Amelia Saltzman cooks modern Jewish cuisine, and her cookbook, one of my favorites, a new release, is called The Seasonal Jewish Kitchen, and she is sharing a fresh take on tradition. She stopped by once again to give us a latka tutorial. And I'm very glad to have you back, Amelia. Hi there. Hello, Jamie. It's great to be back with you. (laughs) Oh, thank you for being here. Um, Start, if you would, with a little more background on the significance of Hanukkah, please. It's actually considered a minor holiday. Mm -hmm. It, It doesn't actually even show up in the Bible because it takes place much later, um, sort of in the ancient history. And it's really the story of the rebellion of Judah and the Maccabees, it's sort of a David and Goliath story, uh, against Syrian Greek rule, and really the the rebellion against assimilation, which has kind of contemporary notes about how to keep your identity wherever you are and still be part of society, which I think is interesting. Yes. But even more so, um, well, and of course, as you said earlier, uh, it's about the rededication of the temple after this victory, and that mythical, because we're not sure that really happened, hmm. the mythical bit of oil that miraculously lasted for eight nights. But because I'm a seasonal girl looking at this in a seasonal lens, <laughs> what I think is really interesting, I find this fascinating, Hanukkah begins on the dark moon, right, no moon, the dark moon before the winter solstice. It is a holiday that begins on the shortest day, the darkest, longest Mm. night of the year. Now, imagine the ancient Hebrews. No city lights, you know, off in the distance, right? Right. It is the longest, darkest night Mm. when they most would have craved light what a great seasonal reminder of why we would celebrate this, you know, fire and flame and, and joyousness of being inside and warmth. Oh, for Perfect. sure. Yeah, it is. And I, I think there's something wonderfully joyous about the dichotomy of that, right? The, the darkest day, the shortest day, and a celebration that changes uh, as far as the actual day that we celebrate every year based on the calendar, and not only the Jewish calendar, but like you said, the solstice per se, there's something really extraordinary about the planning for Hanukkah every year to me, because I, I love that idea of the seasonal approach that you take, especially to Jewish cooking. And one of the things we all love about Hanukkah, aside from eight nights of presents, of course, uh, (laughs) is there is, like most Jewish holidays, a celebration centered around food. And so we celebrate the latka. But as you say in the book, which I think is really fabulous, we are having a latka revolution because (laughs) latkas have come a long way. Well, you know, that's yes and... And no. 
Well, yes, in the, in, in the sense that we're rediscovering or suddenly paying attention yes. to what actually has been around mm-hmm. for a long time. That there's a great tradition of making latkes from more things than potatoes. But we're also, and so we're re-embracing that, if you will, but we're also looking at it in sort of newer ways and and tapping into the flavors that we're really excited about in 2015. Right. And so how do you elevate your latkes? And mind you, I love a classical approach. You know, I was trained classical French. I mean, I definitely believe in going back to our roots. And there might be nothing better than the, <laughs> the beauty of a, a very simply made and straightforward latka. But I do believe that Yukon Gold potatoes have taken us to an elevated level of tubers. And I think that sweet potato latkes and shredding root vegetables as an addition makes for more fabulous flavor. Well, I think, I think it's great to have options. Yes. And I agree with you about a great potato latka. In fact, that's why I called the recipe I include on that, for that one, um, the best potato latkes. Because the truth is, people really suffer from, hmm. from, um, Sort of latka anxiety, if you will. How can a simple pancake be turn out raw, burnt, and greasy all at the same time? It'd be so difficult. An art. Yes, there is an art. So teach us, if you would, just the basic steps as succinct as you can, because there would only be one way better, and that would be if you were here in studio (laughs) with a pan and some fire. Um, But the art of the perfect latka. Well, there are really just a couple of tricks. Um, that are so simple, um, it's it's kind of stupefying, really. <laughs> heat the pan over medium heat so that you can control the heat as it rises to a nice hot temperature. In other words, you want the oil hot, but if you heat over high heat, pretty soon the oil's going to burn. Right. So the other trick don't use too much oil. Latkes really are better pan-fried, not deep-fried. So mm. maybe a quarter of an inch of hot oil. What you should see is a little bit of the batter sizzle right on contact. The other main trick is make your latkes thin. Thin, yes. If they're thin, they will cook all the way through. And be golden brown on the outside. Mm. But if they're too thick when the, or the oil is too cold, it takes way too long for the inside to be cooked. The outside gets, gets burnt mm-hmm. and too much oil because the cold oil will absorb into the food. I really love the crisp edges, but I almost want to taste the crispness all throughout. And there's one tender bite in the center where you sort of get the burst of potato flavor And that's just enough before you move on to the next latka. Now, I love that you say you can make potato pancakes in advance and you can let them cool and then reheat them in a 350 degree oven in a single layer. They do crisp back up. And while I'm not an advocate of freezing things usually, if you're making a vast quantity and you cool them completely, I've had success in freezing latkes and reheating. Have you? Oh, really? I, I have. I know. I, I, another friend of ours, whom you and I know, said that to me recently as well. But if you're making, you know, 
hundreds of them, then at, at some point you have to plan in advance. Um, I think they, <laughs> That's true. they do taste better straight from the pan. Yeah. Here at last, it is a fresh new way to think about Jewish food. The recent release from Amelia Saltzman, The Seasonal Jewish Kitchen, the name of her new cookbook. Uh, just a, a wonderful addition to your cookbook collection. Find an excerpted recipe at chefjamie.com with a direct link to order the book. And you can visit Amelia and find her daily culinary escapades updated at Amelia Saltzman. Dot com. A very happy Hanukkah to you and your family, Amelia. I'll talk to you and soon. And to you and yours. Thank family. you. As the delicious conversation continues and the celebration, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, Chef Jamie Gwen, in your radio as we celebrate the holidays in true style with the greatest culinary thinkers on this show. In my humble opinion, Magnus Nilsson is a superhero. Rather, I should say a super chef. If you have watched the highly acclaimed Chef's Table or Mind of a Chef series, then you have witnessed Chef Magnus Nilsson's incredible culinary talent, his ability to rise above challenges, and his love for his homeland. Favikin, Magnus's innovative restaurant in northern Sweden, is a remote outpost serving extraordinary cuisine. After graduating from cooking school, he moved to Stockholm, then to Paris, working in two of the city's most celebrated restaurants, and returned home at age 24 in 2008 and had planned to become a wine writer. But he reinvented a restaurant instead that has brought him great acclaim. Titles like the best chef in the world have been pronounced in association with Magnus Nilsson. And I am beyond delighted that he is gracing us with his culinary presence today. He has written a magnificent cookbook that is inspired by his travels through Nordic countries. It's entitled The Nordic Cookbook. And Chef Magnus Nilsson is here to dish. I'm very glad to have you, Chef. Thank you for finding the time. Thank you for having me. Um, that's a pretty fantastic introduction. Thank you for that. Yes, well, by the way, all of it comes from your biography. And so <laughs> it's only of credit to you. Um, I, I wonder how this rise to fame has been for you. Adam Sachs of Savour Magazine, who graces this show, and I'm proud to call a friend, um, called your restaurant, Favikin, the most daring restaurant in the world. Uh, what can you say about the the rise to culinary greatness? That's kind of, it's a little bit difficult to comment on, you know, as being the person behind that restaurant. But yes. um, it's really difficult to explain why. But the one thing I can say, though, is that it's been very, very good because if it wasn't for the fact that we become really public and very appreciated uh, all across the world, we would never have been able to fill the restaurant. And um, if we hadn't been able to fill the restaurant, I wouldn't have been able to, you know, allow myself to do all the development uh, we've done up there, you know, uh, with the research in, you know, uh, food traditions and, um, and and basically developing the restaurant into what it is today. Yes, of course. Can you tell us about the culinary experience that you offer to guests? Because it's a very unique one, but it's one very much rooted in your 
your history, your love for your homeland, and the nature of the location and the remoteness of your restaurant. For any restaurateur uh, or really any creative person in any field, like the most important thing you can do is to make the most out of whatever you have where mm. you are, you know, actively working. Yes. Um, regardless if it's like you know positive things or difficulties or whatever it might be. Um, and to me, like being from the northern parts of Sweden, living in the countryside, uh, being very interested in not just cooking but also the production of foods, um, all of those things become quite a big part of the way I, um, you know, create food for the restaurant. Yes. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we want to share. I, I, I know I, I want it to be very clear when you come there um, that it's created by me and the team who are all very passionate about the area and our food culture. Mm. And it's created to be not just kind of, you know, had and then ticked off from a box. It's it's really created as a restaurant experience to enjoy, you know. And yeah, I think that's about it. <laughs> I, I think that's a very good explanation. And, and I know from watching you cook and on the shows that have highlighted, you know, the the beauty of where you are and what you are challenged by, the fact that you make the best of it is really a wonderful lesson for all of us. I mean, whether it's just cooking from, you know, the pantry that you have on hand or being in northern remote Sweden, uh, it really, I think, is a wonderful culinary lesson. I yeah, would love I think, it. I think it's important. Yes. I mean, it, it applies everywhere. You know, if you, if, you run your sit, if you run your restaurant or if you live and cook in a city, for example, mm-hmm. you should make the most out of that. You know, right. all the cultural influences and a huge influx of different produce and stuff like that. And, right. Uh, it makes mm-hmm. sense to do it differently in different ways. Uh, right. So, so, Chef, for those that live in the city, they have a farmer's market that they can go to down the block. Right. Um, For you, you go back to nature because of the obstacles of cold weather right now, especially right. The wintertime, you do a lot of preserving, uh, preserving rather and pickling and brining and curing. Right. Because I loved to see the caves and the fact that you could pluck carrots out of there. It was amazing. Uh, Talk to us, if you would, about the the concept of preserving and, and how much you really do embrace the seasons that give you a bounty so that you can savor them for the rest of the year. So like all over the Nordic region, uh, one of the few kind of defining factors that tie all of these kind of uh, different parts of the region together is that you have uh, four distinctive seasons, mm-hmm. which one is one where you can't really harvest anything, at least of plant materials. Um, and because of this, like in historical times, people had to produce an excess in summer and preserve it for winter and consume it during the dark months. Um, even though, like, you don't have to do that anymore because hmm. today uh, food is imported and, you know, it's transported around, it's frozen, we have many alternative techniques. Um, we still developed a taste for um, the flavor of preserved foods, you know, cheese, olives, charcuterie, uh, stuff like that. Um, and we really kept to those traditions, and um, you know, we 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 uh, and not for the restaurant, but really for everyone, uh, pretty much. We we can try to keep those flavors, even if don't have to anymore. Uh, definitely so, Chef. We need to take a quick pause. There is more with Chef Magnus Nilsson of Favikan Restaurant in Sweden right after this.
We're back and we're dishing because we have the best culinary thinkers on this show. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio with Chef Magnus Nilsson. I love reading this encyclopedia manual that you have written. Uh, The cookbook is organized into 22 recipe chapters and it introduces us to the familiar like gravlocks and meatballs and lingonberry jam that we expect. But then there are the less familiar aspects of Nordic cuisine that you've introduced us to. It is a very deep dive into your traditions. It's also over 700 authentic recipes and uh, must weigh five pounds. I mean, this is a, a manual that you've written and really an incredible feat that I congratulate you with uh, and, and congratulate you for rather. But reading through it, I found that you have particular loves. Like you happen to be fond of cauliflower, right? Yeah. Yes, you like <laughs> cauliflower. And I loved all the different preparations. So I thought maybe you would share with us your favorite. So I think one thing that's important with the book to start with is that none of the recipes are mine. Uh, I haven't created a single recipe in the book. Hmm. They've all been collected um, by myself when traveling in the Nordic region. Uh, And I only really tried to compile, you know, um, a selection of recipes as representative as possible of the region as a whole. Um, So I think uh, the fact that there are a lot of cauliflower recipes in in that chapter is actually because I'm not alone to like cauliflower in the Nordics, <laughs> but I can still give you one of my favorites. Yes. Um, and it's the gratin, the cauliflower gratin. I think that's really tasty. It's Basically, uh, cauliflower and bechamel sauce and a little bit of cheese. Yeah, um, and how could that be bad? And then, um, will you talk glog? Because it is your glog, your signature mold wine. Uh, it definitely would keep you warm, I would think, um, during the, the bitter months. Glug is something that, it's basically a red wine with uh, some sweetening like either sugar or honey, mm-hmm. um, infused with different sweet spices like cinnamon, ginger, cloves, nutmeg, uh, cardamom, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, and it's pretty much consumed during the whole month of December up until Christmas. Uh, starting perhaps with uh, Santa Lucia Day on the 13th, and then right really um, uh, on a very regular basis all up until Christmas Day. <laughs> okay, I'm in. I, uh, of course, wish you continued success. I thank you for sharing your insight um, and the the beautiful personal photography that uh, is shown throughout the book. It is an incredible culinary history, not only of the Nordic countries and Sweden, but of yours as well. And we will continue to follow your career and um, see all the beautiful leaps and bounds and, um, and and wonderful dishes that you bring to the gastronomic world. So I thank you very much for the time. I'm very honored to have you. And, uh, and I hope you'll come uh, back again soon. And much luck with the book, of course. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, of thank course. You. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Magnus Nilsson is the head chef of Favikan in Sweden, currently ranked in the San Pellegrino World's 50 Best Restaurants list in 2015. This year, Magnus was awarded the White Guide Global Gastronomy Award. This is a big volume book for collectors and cooks, and it is truly inspiring. So check it out. The Nordic Cookbook, recently released from Magnus Nilsson. Thank you again, Chef. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. As the delicious conversation continues, stay tuned. There's more fabulous food in your radio right after this.
Cheers to you and welcome back. Chef Jamie Gwen in your radio celebrating the season. Talk about a great read. It is an extraordinary tale of one of the world's most legendary cocktail cities. We are quenching your thirst today and celebrating San Francisco, a city devoted to drink. Tales and recipes focusing on the cultural cocktail history of one of America's most beloved cities can be found in the new book release from author, distiller, and barkeeper Duggan McDonnell. The book is entitled Drinking the Devil's Acre, a love letter from San Francisco and her cocktails. And live from the basement of his cantina, his bar called Cantina on Sutter Street in San Francisco, Duggan is here and has stopped by to dish, and I'm glad to have you. Welcome. Thanks, Jamie. Yes, Such a pleasure to chat with oh, you. Oh, well, thank you. The book is really sophisticated and classy and, um, and a fabulous read, Duggan, and there was so much grand education in it. I, I was very surprised to hear the stories and to read your uh, chronicle of the history itself. Spirits and cocktails have played a far longer role in the history of cocktails themselves, shaping the culture of San Francisco than I ever knew. Well, you know, I, that, that's what I learned, and that is in part what compelled me to write the book, is that I was researching and I was sort of writing uh, a collection of recipes and sort of writing my own sort of barkeeper's memoirs, but I wanted to cast it uh, in the light of history uh, hmm. with San Francisco. And one of the things that I discovered was that there were so many books being published, and there was so much creativity and innovation happening right uh, from 1849 on. In fact, uh, there was a claim that the world's first cocktail book was actually published in San Francisco in 1850. Uh, And then, you know, from my accounts, I discovered that uh, California's first cookbook wasn't published until 1889, but about six or seven different cocktail books had been published Mm. uh, prior to that. And I said, huh, Something must have been going on uh, during those decades. No doubt. Uh, And I think it's fascinating because it proves that you should always have a cocktail first, right? (laughs) As As, a a great introduction (laughs) to a meal. Okay, so take us on an exploration of the Red Light District, which I know uh, it was known as the Barbary Coast during the second half of the 19th century, right? The Barbary Coast, uh, Hmm. it was, you know, considered the craziest place in the world for several decades, right? A- it, it, it was the mouth of the city, and it was situated on the port, and so everyone was coming in there, right? Well, you're talking about, you know, the fastest-growing, richest city in the, in the history of the world because of the gold. And then, fast-forward 15 years, you have the Comstock load and all of its silver, and then you have the railroads and you have the redwoods and uh, all of the mining and the robber barons, and all in San Francisco just kept exploding with growth. Well, there's going to be a seedy underworld. Uh, you know, there's going to be the flea that feeds off the flesh of all of that. And that was the Barbary Coast. And um, a lot of drinking was had in there, as you might imagine. But there was also, you know, every saloon was also a brothel. There was a bit of gambling happening in every saloon. There was, you know, you could wrestle or, 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 or drink, uh, have drinking contests with grizzly bears, uh, for God's sake. It was, cool. it was the craziest place. <laughs> Uh, and in fact, that's where, of course, I take the title from. Drinking the Devil's Acre. I think it's very interesting that San Francisco is the birthplace of today's most requested drinks. And I'd like to talk about your bar as well. But the Pisco Punch, the Mai Tai, the Irish coffee, all created 
or developed in San Francisco, as you say. So how did one city have such a profound impact on what we drink today? Well, you know, in as much as the Barbary Coast was a place of drink, the entire city was as well. Mm-hmm. And that's because it had so much expendable income. Okay, so look, if you have an extra $5,000 in your pocket, you're going to be apt to drink something and you're going to be curious. And look, there was, you know, from day one, there was a lot of talent behind the bars here in San Francisco Mm. because they could make a great living. And in fact, it was the most famous barkeep of the 19th century, Jerry Thomas who claimed to make more money than the, as a bartender than, than the vice president of the United States. Uh, that was in the 1860s and 70s. That's amazing. Live from San Francisco, um, from the basement of his bar called Cantina, you really should go visit on Sutter Street in San Fran. And you really should take the time to enjoy the new book release from Duggan McDonnell. It is called Drinking the Devil's Acre. It is a love letter from San Francisco and her cocktails. It's a a beautiful read, Duggan. Congratulations. And once again, thank you for sharing your passion. Come back soon with new inspired cocktails, please. I certainly will. I'd love it. I'd love it, of course. There's a direct link to Duggan's famous cocktail, The Laughing Buddha, posted at chefjamie.com, and it will get you directly to his bar, Cantina, and Drinking the Devil's Acre so that you can bring the book into your collection. So that brings us to the end of another hour of Delicious Conversation. I hope that I've inspired you to cook new things this week and that you will check out chefjamie.com to entertain with ease this holiday season. I have an endless list of holiday recipes and seasonal food ideas And I post daily updates on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Chef Jamie Gwen. I'll leave you with my last bite for the hour. I bet you have some goat cheese or blue cheese in your fridge right now, or maybe a mix of some cheeses you can blend together. Well, I will go straight to my fridge later today, and I will make a cheese log, perfect for a quick appetizer before Sunday supper with a nice glass of wine, of course. So I thought I would inspire you to raid your fridge and pantry and consider that a cheese log is a great go-to this holiday season for a last-minute starter or appetizer or if friends or neighbors happen to stop by. The cheese all combined, like goat cheese and blue cheese together, is so much better when the flavors meld and when it's served, by the way, at just cooler than room temperature. Um, You can always, of course, blend in honey or maple syrup or even jalapenos. You can coat the cheese log in a bevy of things like dried cranberries or pistachios or cracked pepper and fresh thyme. And of course, the flavors for your homemade cheese log, well, they're endless and you can cater them to your palate. Plus, I love to make them because it's like Play-Doh for grown-ups. I'll post my best cheese log combinations and photos on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram once again at Chef Jamie Gwen. And I hope you'll become a fan and a friend and that you'll continue to listen to this show every Sunday as the delicious conversation continues. I thank you for listening. I'm Chef Jamie Gwen signing off. I hope you continue to eat well. Well.